You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Arc 2 is proudly sponsored by HeroForge, a free online character design application that lets you make and order your very own custom TTRPG minis. Their character creation tools are rich and deep, with facial customization, animal companions, action poses, spell effects, hundreds of clothing options, and nigh-infinite color choices. Get a color-printed mini, unpainted premium plastic, bronze minis, color standees, or even your very own digital STL files for printing at home or use in virtual tabletops. To see their tools in action, go to HeroForge Minis on Twitter and search Artemis. They made a mini of Nova's very own Hand of Fate, and she looks good. Check out HeroForge today at HeroForge.com. Content warnings for this episode include death of loved ones, grief, mourning, fire, fantasy violence, complex and complicated relationships, and blood. Arc 2, Episode 1 Look what you've done. From Carved Inside an Empty Urn by Connie Chong. The Prime Oracle is glowing a color that hasn't been named yet. It pulses between terminal reds, sunrise blues, greens as painful as the first tender fingers of spring bursting from dead soil. The chamber is empty, a wound, a womb, save for the soft curves of darkness that suggest walls and the glowing, pulsing hum of the oracle. Everything stands in front of the oracle gazing into its endless depths like a seer about to trance. To her left, magic, bored and fretful. Behind her, her hands, even Lucy isn't sure. After forever, after never, fate turns. The air tastes like honey, blood, premonition. Her endless dress burns into, out of, the oracle in dense golden spools, the color of her skin. Their hair is dark, as short as a mortal's lifespan. It frames a round face brimming with emotion. Her eyes. You notice her eyes. For the first time in a long time, you see them, really see them, because she allows you to, because it is better this way, more poetic. Magic's eyes are every color at once. Fate's eyes are just the one shade. Pink. In this chamber that is a wound that is a womb. In this womb that is a killing blow that hasn't happened yet. Fate turns to face you, the patron saint of mortals, Artemis. Tell me the story again. The day the Chosen One dies, a world made of leaves erupts into flame, and the fire climbs so high it scorches the stars black. Fate's eyes sparkle like stars winking out on a distant horizon. Behind Artemis, the older patron saints shift uncomfortably. Hero and monster. And then what happens? Her mission is clear. She sees the burning path laid out before her. They can see the dragon princess dying, the fire having claimed her soul. 
she can see the endless cycle of hatred and flame. She knows she can stop it. They were taught to stop it. They act knowing it would be their last, but she does it anyway. She plants her heart in the loam, and she dies. Fate makes a noise, like sighing, but not quite. She closes her eyes and goes far, far away, somewhere above the journey, somewhere beyond the beyond. And in that moment, no one but nothing knows what she's thinking. Magic watches it all, worrying the soft curve of his mouth. And then fate opens her eyes, and she addresses the first of her hands. Patron saint of heroes, come forth. And Wu Yin does. His brilliant armor dulls in comparison to the perhelion that is fate's visage. And yet he stands, and yet he holds her gaze not out of insolence, never out of insolence, but out of devotion. The deepest, most loyal devotion anyone has ever felt to anything in the entire existence of the journey. Fate cups Uyin's face, Tada proud jaw wet with tears, Tada heroic heart. And fate says, take unto you the courage to protect your wards, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil night, and having done all, to kneel. Uyin kneels. Fate moves on. Patron saint of monsters, come forth. And Lucy does. Her tailored suit is light against the void black shadows that bristle at the edges of this chamber, and yet she stands. And yet she holds fate's gaze, not out of insolence, hardly out of insolence, but out of debt. The deepest, most cutting debt anyone has ever felt to anything in the entire existence of the journey. Fate cups Lucy's face, their cruel smile, their bestial heart. And fate says, Take unto you the rage to destroy your enemies, that ye may be able to lay waste upon the evil night. And having done all, to rise. Lucy raises her head. Fate moves on. Patron saint of mortals, come forth. And Artemis does. Their armor is worn and bruised against the perfect light that spills from the oracle's center. And yet she stands. And yet they hold fate's gaze, not out of insolence, never out of insolence, not this time, not this time out of insolence, but out of responsibility. The deepest, most wretched responsibility anyone has ever felt to anything in the entire existence of the journey. Fate cups Artemis's face, their borrowed eyes, their broken heart, and fate says, Take unto you the hunger to hunt your enemies, that ye may be able to desire more than the evil night, and having done all, to want. William doesn't catch it, but magic does. Lucy does. And Artemis, you certainly do. The sharp sting of something passing between precept and hand. Fate is looking at you in a curious way, in a pink way. The words hunger, want, had passed over her destined tongue like blaze of sugar. What movements pass over your face as you catch this? Almost nothing. It should have been nothing. They let it slip a little bit this time. This time they do let a little bit slip. 
that borrowed gaze bounces back and forth, just a tiny bit, searching fate's pink eyes. The tiniest twitch, the corner of their expression, but it fades so fast, it's nearly gone by the time it arrives. Nothing. They let nothing show. They let nothing show. They let nothing show. Fate tips her head to the side. Those pink eyes unchanged, that visage unmoved, and you cannot tell Artemis if she's caught the nothing that flits across your gaze. And then she steps back. The light from the Prime Oracle forms a burning halo behind her head. Magic by her side observes carefully, quietly, as he always does. But something is different with magic. Slightly different, barely perceptible, but you notice it, you and Lucy both. For the first time since time, the third precept is choosing to look at someone, something other than fate. Magic is choosing to look at you. And then fate speaks. Yin, how did my chosen one die? <sighs> Bravely. Selflessly. She sacrificed herself to save the princess of a green world. She died like a hero. Lucy, how did my chosen one die? Painlessly. Gorgeously, with the name of her beloved on her tongue, the wishes of her father in her mind, and the hand of her brother on her heart. Hmm. Artemis, how did my chosen one die? Heroically. Monstrously. Mortally. She died as she lived. Her heart impaled on an arrow of circumstance. Hmm. You are all correct. And you are all wrong. My chosen died at the hands of oblivion. It was nothing that took her, and nothing which is to blame. Wuyin throws out his chest curls his fists, lets his tears fall, then let us hunt her for you. He must answer. It must pay. No, no, no. The Mayday Protocol, my Mayday Protocol, is absolute. All strike teams must abide, including the Twilight Guard. The death of my Chosen is a Grievous loss, yes, but we cannot kill Oblivion for this. This lapse in judgment. She's still learning. We must be patient. We must be kind. Fate thumbs over Wu Yin's cheek, wipes his tears away. Wu Yin sniffs hard and not, his eyes bursting with love and pain. Magic frowns. It creases his perfect mouth. Is this the message you wish to relay to the Syndicate, Fate? It is the truth, Artemis. Nothing less and nothing more. Can the three of you do this for me? Yes, Fate. Of course. If it is your will, then let it be done. So it is said. So it is done. Bow your heads in remembrance. Lift your spirits in hope. The Syndicate needs her hands. The journey needs its guides. I return to my work as you return to yours. Oh, and make sure her statue in the Hall of Heroes is nice and big. Magic? There is a noise like wind color like rain, and then the precepts are gone. 
The hands of fate stand alone in this chamber, this wound, this womb. William is the first to move. He turns, throws out Tata chest once more, looks at you, Artemis, with pity and sorrow. Patron saint of mortals, Artemis, my gravest, deepest condolences. Artemis looks right past him. Her eyes immediately fall on Lucy behind him, still standing halfway in the shadows. You noticed, didn't you? They're not telling us something. Vuyen goes on, heedless of your ignoring him. Sing was a hero. Still feels like she is a hero sometimes. She will be remembered. All of us will remember her. Me, most of all. All the agents of trans will walk paths that honor her. Lucy meets your gaze, her dark eyes burning. I don't know what you're talking about, Artemis. Don't bullshit me, Lucy. I could say the same for you. Moving on to business as always, now are we? Talking about fate. Don't. You know as well as I do, ever since they came from that plane with their Mayday protocol, something has been different. They're not telling us something. They've never not told us before. Ah, uh, yes. That Andake something Artemis. Fate has her secrets. Magic has, well, her secrets too. Our job right now is to restore a balance to the Syndicate, and there might be some discrepancies, yes, some interesting things that don't quite match up about the place they came from. But what I care about, what you should care about, is how your heart is faring, Artemis. Those arrows in your back seem to be bleeding. Don't. They are. I can see your blood, Artemis. It's pitifully mortal. Artemis stares at her for a long time before that mismatched gaze flicks back to Luyan. I appreciate your condolences. And I'll make sure the statue is as big as the moon, as big as any tower that's ever reached the underbelly of heaven, and oh, that still won't be enough. That still won't be enough to honor her laurel wreaths. Luyan. Artemis. Just make sure she's smiling. And Artemis turns, and they walk. They walk out. They leave. And their back is bleeding. And one by one, the hands of fate exit after you. Until nothing is the only thing left. Two months pass. There is a funeral. It is well attended. Not by Strike Team Nova. <laughs> In fact, only Seir shows up. Fate herself, even makes an appearance. Aside from that, she is not seen again. Time, uncaring, heedless, goes on. Condolences are passed along. Tears are shed. The death of the Chosen is felt in every prayer. Oblivion's name is whispered in fear, in loathing. A statue is commissioned, nice and big, placed in a seat of honor among the Hall of Heroes. It looks exactly like her. It looks nothing like her. In these two months, what remains of her strike team is rarely seen and felt only in negatives. The lone survivor support group becomes helmed by Arush, a fine spokesperson, but no real substitute. The farmlands of Comops keep thriving, keep growing. But every now and then, Kenzo Hirose casts a furrowed look toward a row of cherry saplings, four months old, going on five, untended by their planter. In the forbidden stacks of the archives, Elsbeth notes a consistently missing name in the library logs. She checks a few times, checks again. Debates sending a message, then decides against it. The recuperation chambers of therapeutics and recovery continue to hum with activity, healers new and experienced honing their craft, but the supply of stabilizing gum stays steady, a couple grams heavier than usual. The arenas 
team with activity. The Mayday Protocol is taxing, the most taxing syndicate-wide program in recent memory, recent being relative, of course. Every field agent spends their free time resting or training. Well, almost every field agent. Cove throws agent after agent after agent onto tightly packed sands of the sparring pit, roaring in fury and sweat. But every time she looks up, the one person she really wants to beat into the ground with her bare fists isn't there. He's never there. The one person who is there, who has always been there, is Artemis. She attends the funeral. She oversees the candlelight vigil organized by LSSG. They do paperwork. They put their signature on permission slips. She trains new agents, goes to meetings, works, works, works. They keep their distance from Strike Team Nova. And now we find you in your office, Artemis. And we find Zynan in the knife at your hip. You've watched her for weeks now, Zynan. Two months worth of weeks. The passage of time feels like nothing to you. The passage of time feels like an exploded bullet wrenching its jagged path through your shrapnel-laden soul. You watch Artemis attend meetings. Dozens of them, hundreds of them, so many agents, so many strike teams. You watch the dark woods outside her window, bathed in mist and memories you can't make out. Or maybe they're dreams. Or maybe they're moons. Or maybe they're nothing more than forgotten echoes of what they once were. You watch Artemis's strike teams come and go. No one else comes back one person short. No one else comes back in Artemis's arms. No one else comes back missing a piece of their heart. Still, you watch her. Strapped to her hip, you feel like a part of her. Like you're seeing out of their eyes. Those golden halos borrowed from somewhere, something, someone else. They don't speak to you. They don't acknowledge you, but you know they know. You're there. She looks at you sometimes, sees you through the dust, the knife's edge, the hollow cut in space. Sometimes you see yourself through their eyes. You don't look well. In the Wild Sea, the spirit realm you fled to was populated by ghostly forms, half-sunken memories, a miasma of worlds and apocalypses and cycles gone by. In trans, the spirit realm is empty. After all, the binding agreement you make when you become an agent of fate's will is absolute. When you die, you go straight to oblivion. There is no afterlife for the members of the Syndicate. So you are alone in every sense of the word, floating above and between interperceptual space, safe in your solitude, unspoken, unasked for. The ghost realm is exactly like the material realm, but thinner, more faded, more fogged, blurred at the edges, sunken in the center. You can't move, can't speak, can barely hear, can hardly think. The longer you stay here, the less you remember anything of being alive, of being a man, of being Zynan Esh. Stay here long enough, and the edges of who you are will fade into what you used to be until there's nothing left but dust. Zynan, what are you doing inside the ghost realm when Artemis finally speaks to you? The window is like a lighthouse. The moons, the silhouette of the forest. Most often, though, he can see her at her desk. He can also see the moons because he doesn't need to look. 
And there's something beautiful in the quiet. And he is watching. She calls your name first. Zina Nash. The syllables are a prayer in their own right. A whisper on the wind. You see a flash of golden eyes, a ripple of movement. And then she steps in. She steps into the ghost realm with you. Spirit world sighs, sings. And it changes her. Their chest flattens along these long, elegant strips of cloth. Stretchy enough to keep their ribs free, yes, tight enough to keep them bound. Their armor flows down into an off-white robe, torn at the hems, laying in jagged pieces around strong thighs. Hair sprouts from her scalp. White. Silver. Starlight. The moon. It's shaved at the sides, tossed behind her head like a mane, two braids framing their face. Just like Azalees, if they had cut their hair with a hunting knife. Just like Sing's. Her frame narrows, becomes younger, softer. And you can't see their eyes, no. Half of their face is hidden beneath a silvered, chipped mask, etched with laurel leaves, framed by two huge horns raking up and back so that the points are gesturing at the sky like a crescent moon, a crescent halo. She's not wearing shoes. Her feet are bloody. She's bleeding. There are arrows sticking out of her back. Hundreds, you think, at first, but no, there are just three. She doesn't seem to notice. Artemis tilts her head to the side. Have you forgotten me already, Zynanesh? The first time that he hears his name again, not spoken out of question or wonder, but to him, it echoes through him like a vast, empty cavern. But then he can feel her with him, and that feeling of all of the ghosts of the wild sea, of all the ghosts that he carries with him, sitting with him. And she is so much more familiar than almost any ghost he has ever sat with. Almost. And suddenly that vast cavern is filled again with memories of dust and leaves, raptors, and the moons. And he, a present but still vague specter of dust, turns and looks at the moon, not the one in the window. The moon looks back. You, uh, we're here. We are. We're here, Zynan, both of us. You. And he sees the blood and that drop of blessing that held on to him for so long in the wild sea comes rushing through him and he can feel that will to protect and the purple spot that hit his hand that became a freckle of a blessing solidifies are you alright? alright are you in really such a state to be asking me that? you're you're bleeding I'm always bleeding, Zynan. So are you. Um, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not sure how long I've been here. You've been here for some time. I'm not here to bring you back. I'm here to show you something. Something I think you need to see. And there's a trust. The only thing that pulls him forward forever as he looks, looking for those eyes, but seeing mask. And he will always follow whatever Artemis says. And as he looks to his hand, green streaks begin to form in the dust and around it, a frame of lavender skin, the dust coalescing, remembering what it is why it's here 
and he just steps forward like he's stepped into her office the same way he stepped into her office for a decade. And he's the same man again. And Artemis walks forward, turning her back on you so you can see those three arrows in her back. Larger than the sky, larger than God they are. And she leads you just as she has for a decade, knowing that you will follow. There are no footsteps behind her. There don't need to be. And the dust just billows as Zynan. Zynan, Zynan. He remembers, but he keeps walking. Lumira, it is midnight in the Syndicate. Local time, of course, but does it really matter? Now is a time when time has gone to rest, so the minutes pass easily. You feel them moving through you, on and on and on and on, uncaring, heedless pulling on your soul, like fish hooks. Where are you at midnight, and what are you doing? Weirdly enough, you would think Lumira would be in the library, which typically she is, but at this particular point in time, she's actually in one of the trans training rooms and is in the middle of going through a routine that while she looks exhausted, all of her everything is being put into it, but it's so repetitive, it looks like it's almost second nature. Like this is something that she's been doing and routinely working on for quite some time now. She has her boot dagger and it's wrapped in her left hand. Her gold fingertips still have not changed back from the wild sea. If anything, they're just a slight bit further down her fingers than they were when we previously saw her. But she's attacking forward with her boot knife at the ready at this model thing that's in front of her and she's just beating the dog shit out of it. Yeah, this arena is completely empty. You're the only person here. Your footfalls, your heart thundering in your throat, the pattering of your sweat against the sand beneath you, your blows landing on this leather bag vaguely shaped like a person. These are the only noises that echo through this completely abandoned training hall. You don't hear the crackling of fire, the roars of leviathans, the hollow emptiness underneath Sing's chest. The door creaking open, the oracle greeting the patron saint of mortals, Artemis at all, until she says, Your left foot is too far back. I taught you better than that, Lumira. Lumira doesn't say anything. Instead, she's barefoot. Her boots are very neatly put over to the side, and she's kind of on her tippy toes ascends and bare feet. And she firmly plants her left foot at that 45 degree angle exactly before going directly back to what she was doing. Artemis starts circling you, I think. Good. Up with your elbow, yes. Right. And strike. Feel the ground underneath you. Good. And with every instruction you see her correcting her stance moving exactly where you say to where she needs to every time you say hit a resounding thud echoes throughout the training room itself in a grunt frustration pain exhaustion you can't really tell but it's there and it's resonant Artemis watches you for a few more minutes until those sounds of stress, exhalation, intensity start to rise, I think. And then finally it's hit, hit, ground yourself, 
Again. Once more. Again. Good. 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 That's enough for now, I think. Again. Hmm. But if we go again, you'll miss what I have to show you. And she will stick her dagger back into its holster and quietly, solemnly, the pitter-patter of her bare feet slapping across the wood floors. She walks over to her boots and starts to slip her feet back into them. Don't bother. You don't need them where we're going. You can take them with you if you like, though. And she'll go over and just wrap her boots over her forearm. Come with me. I have something for you. But the way she says it is not a demand. It's an invitation. I think it's clear to you, even as she says it, that this is not an order, it's not a missive, it's not a directive. It's a question. You could tell her that you wanted to go to bed now, and she would let you. You could tell her you wanted to go again, and she would let you. But she looks back at you with that mismatched gaze, and you know that whatever it is, is important enough to be a question and not a directive. She will straighten her posture. What would you like to show me? Follow me. The corridors of trans are as silent and still as a mausoleum. Pale light filters through viewing bays, green stars, purple moons, a thousand midnights on a thousand different realms. Artemis guides you through solitary halls, abandoned chambers, empty aisles filled with empty air. You don't pass a single other living soul. What do you do or say, if anything, as you follow Artemis? Lumera doesn't say anything, but her eyes, even though they look like they have not seen real sleep in what is time to her now. They are everywhere frantically bouncing from wall to wall, highly on alert in case we do happen to come across anyone in the agency. She's out of uniform and barefoot. This is not the way she wants to be caught, but she's also with Artemis. So that doesn't really matter as much as it would be if she was walking the halls by herself. Artemis takes you almost in complete silence. A few minutes into your walk, I think, without turning around to even look at you, she just asks into the silence, into the hallway, when was the last time you slept, Lumira? It takes her a long time to answer. Um, I fell asleep at my workstation late last night, maybe... 20 minutes. Mm. And I take it that as a skilled member of therapeutics and recovery, you could tell me exactly what sleep deprivation does to a person. The body loses an innate abilities to fight off infectious diseases, bacterial infections, sicknesses. Sleep is needed for the body to heal, recoup. Hmm. Did you know that patron saints don't sleep? We don't need to. Sounds lucky. Hmm. You'd think, wouldn't you? She doesn't say anything else after that. Eventually, the two of you round a corner, and you arrive in front of Artemis's office. The route she took you down was totally new to you. A quiet, undisturbed way to reach the abode of the patron saint of mortals. And the route now is forever known to you. The door in front of you is as it always is. Wooden, stately, carved with leaves and vines. Artemis turns the brass knob. When the door opens, you see a very familiar office, tasteful browns and greens, the occasional glint of silver, furniture carved from dark mahogany, rugs of hide and fur, antlers, weapons, the forest, the vast, dark, misty forest beyond her window, each tree 
like an emerald dagger. Artemis comes back inside with the ease of a hunter returning to roost. I think she sighs and kind of runs a hand over the wood grain of her desk. And when they turn to look at you, it's with the same expression that's been on her face since you were eight years old. Something inquisitive. Something pushing. One of her little tests. There are three hidden sigils in this room. They've been here for as long as I have. And I get the feeling that you have guessed at the location of at least one of them by now. I would be disappointed if you hadn't. I want you to tell me where it is. Lumira does a slow scan across the room, almost as if her eyes are almost like lasers as it scans the top to bottom of the room, side to side, before one little corner doesn't look like it always has. She starts to question herself. She's been in this office so many times, and yet that corner looks as if it's as blatant as it should be, like something that should always have caught her eye, but she never really seen it until now. Trust yourself. And she's going to walk over to the far right corner and stop directly before she walks any further into it. Has this always been here before? Mm. Yes and no. What do you mean? And the difference now is that the door is open to you. And I think this corner is situated between the window and the wall. And Artemis kind of comes up next to you, rather close, reaches an arm past you, and she does. Her hand just goes right through the window, like it wasn't there at all, like it's a door. You won't fall. What? And she reaches out with her gold-tipped fingers and spreads them out as she steps through tentatively but also knowing that you wouldn't invite her to a space that would willingly cause her any harm pass right through the window and like howl walking through the air both you and artemis descend down onto the misty path into the forest that's always just beyond that thin pane of glass that was in fact thinner than you had even thought possible. Non-existent. Artemis breathes in a deep sigh. Looks more comfortable than I think you've ever seen her before. Good. Now keep close, we're almost there. Okay. And she follows in step with you. Sayer. The Hall of Heroes is one of the Syndicate's most sacred places. It is a monument to the champions of trans. It is a reminder of the sacrifices required. It is a promise of what is to come. The walls are tall and endless. Pedestals of gleaming bone and brine bright ivory intersperse the carpet with marble busts mounted on top. Carved likenesses of agents, somber and austere and heroic, they stare down at visitors from every direction. Each plinth is marked with a placard, written in a language everyone instantly recognizes. Names. Dates. Deeds. Your sister's statue occupies a seat of honor in one of the hall's many atriums. It's not just a bust, it's a life-sized rendering, radiant, full of motion. Her longsword is drawn, the point is directed at the heavens, her face is open, smiling, bright, hopeful. Their hair flows out behind them like a lion's mane, an effortless waterfall of marble. The placard reads, Sing, the chosen one. May her life inspire. May her death remind. Sayer, 
as you look up at your sister, as you always have, as you perhaps always will, what emotions cross your face? And what words, if any, pass through your lips? There is knelt in the shadow of the statue. Upon his hand, a brass plate filled with an assortment of flowers, sweets, treats, candies. A little oil lamp sits at the corner, lit with a flame, and he slowly passes each flower, each candy, each sweet treat, and there is a stoic, bland, plain look on his face, a man made hollow in the months and weeks that have passed. His shaggy hair now longer, its medium length draping down at the nape of his neck. It's messy, it's tussled. His face a smattering of messy, unkept stubble. He has neglected his shaving. His eyes are tired, but steadfastly, devotedly, he kneels by this statue in its shadow, placing all of these items. And all he says is, sorry, sister. I know it's been a while. I got you your favorites. Sayer, you have chosen an unpopular time to visit your sister's statue. On purpose, of course. The halls are quiet. The plinths are unattended. And yet, you sense someone. Because they allow themselves to be sensed by you. Several dozen feet across the atrium, Artemis is observing a bust. You don't recognize it, especially not at this distance, but she regards it with open, studious care. And as soon as your eyes fall upon her, she lifts her gaze to meet yours. And they approach one foot after the other, their expression set into something unreadable. Artemis looks at you, setting this altar. And I think before speaking to you, she reaches into a pocket and she pulls out something that you have rarely seen on her person. A weapon. Patron saint of mortals rarely carries weapons, if ever. She pulls out a chipped tip of an arrow. Tiny, fragmented splinter of bone. She places it carefully onto the altar beside everything else near the incense. Agent. And forgive me just a moment. And Sayer places the oil lamp with the lit flame. Using the palm of his hand, he places it right at the base of the statue, almost lighting the placard in this dim orange light. He presses his palms against his knees, bows his head, mutters something underneath his breath, and then stands up to his full height and looks at the patron saint of mortals and uh, nods. And? Agent Sayer. Forgive me for conducting business in the Hall of Heroes. Anything you need. The hands of fate have spoken, and we've come to a suitable agreement about your breach of Code 31, Section B of Fate's Handbook, jeopardizing your strike team's mission, your place as an agent of trans, and the fabric of the multiverse itself. Given the circumstances, they've left it in my hands. And what do you decree, sir? Well, come with me. And I will show you. And as you walk, hold your chin high. This is not your last day in the Hall of Heroes. It's not the last time you will be able to attend to your sister's altar. But there is a lesson I would like you to learn today. Yes, Hand. And Sayer dusts off the white trousers that he wears, funeral garb, and marches behind the Great Huntress. Sayer. You follow Artemis out of the Hall of Heroes and down a winding, solitary maze of corridors. 
You recognize the general direction of her footfalls. She is leading you toward the training arenas. But the specific turns they make, the doors they pass through, the hallways they enter, they are utterly unfamiliar to you. You are being led to a part of trans you have not been allowed to pass through until this very moment. A set of doors hisses open at the center, and you step into an alpine valley, a mountainous evergreen forest, the ground thick with needles and stone. Huge slabs of rock stand proudly. The air is brisk and sharp, brimming with the bittersweet smell of pine and approaching storm. A dense mist coils over the jagged slopes, obscuring the depths of this valley far, far beneath you and lingering on your clothes like a forgotten lover. Sayer, what do you think this test would be about? Sayer purses his lips. He fidgets with his finger inside of his pockets. His hand would go to the hilt of his crescent blade at his waist, but he feels disconnected, like a barrier has been created between his hand and the hilt. And so he plays with his fingers instead in his pocket. About drive, about persisting, dedication, in the face of, he just trails off. Hmm. And Artemis gives you an unplaceable look. Something about your answer stuck, but not in the way you expected it to. Hmm. Wild Hunt, time is now. Sayer's whole demeanor changes. He steps back a half step in sheer shock, Ed pans his eyes around for a moment, a brief moment, the lightless eyes, his lightless blue eyes, once boyish, now shattered, return with that similar glow for just a moment. Wild Hunt? You didn't sense them already. You do still have a lot to learn. Give me a hand. And he pans his eyes around excitedly, a childhood dream now made realized. And Sayer, the mists thicken. Four distinct shadows form, now called by their hand. Artemis's top-ranked strike team, her chosen band, the Wild Hunt. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to Stardiers, Jordan, Derek Davidson, Phil, Mark J, Astrid, Spencer, Lyle and Peanut, Rose, Alex, The Bow System, Cassidy, Lex, Charles, Cora Eckert, and Scruffesis. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!